Welcome to Witness, a ministry of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. Join us in person for worship each Sunday at 9.30 a.m. For more information about Covenant, including discipleship and mission opportunities, visit us at www.covenantpresjackson.org. Mark moves from the introductory sentence that we looked at last week to a quotation from Scripture. As you'll see in our study of Mark, he does not quote Scripture very often. But Matthew does. When you read Matthew's gospel, you will find a citation from the Old Testament on almost every page. Matthew wants to be clear that the Scriptures are fulfilled in Jesus. But not Mark. He's more subtle. He will make many Old Testament allusions, and if you pay attention, you will hear them. But here's one of the few quotations, so we'd better pay close attention to this. This is actually a combination quote, mostly taken from Isaiah, part of our Old Testament reading last week, telling of a messenger telling of a preparer, a voice in the wilderness, one who will prepare the way for the Lord. Then, Mark says, John appeared. Now, this is not subtle. Mark wants you to see clearly that John is the messenger. John is the preparer. John is the voice in the wilderness foretold by Isaiah. And he's more than a charismatic minister. He's more than a revivalistic preacher. John is a prophet. John is a messenger of God, called by God, sent by God to proclaim the word of God. Now, how do we know John's a prophet? How can we say he's a a prophet and not just a, a preacher? Well, strangely enough, his appearance, his dress, In verse 6, Mark tells us that John appeared wearing clothing of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. I'm sure he was quite a sight, this wild dress and living off the land, but this wild dress does point to his calling as a prophet. And, And here's how. One of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament was Elijah. Elijah was a prophet in a very dark time in the history of Israel during the reign of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. Now, Ahab and and Jezebel brought great economic growth to Israel. They built a grand capital in Samaria. Times were good. Life was prosperous, but there was just one thing. King Ahab adopted Jezebel's worship of the idol Baal. They built temples to Baal. They built altars to Baal. They recruited hundreds of priests for Baal. Well, God sent Elijah to stand up against this idolatry. Our Old Testament reading describes Elijah's dress. Listen listen again to 2 Kings 1, verse 8. He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. John was a prophet. A prophet in the mold of of Elijah and his ministry, his prophetic calling was to prepare the way, to get God's people ready for the coming of the Lord, to be a messenger, to be a voice crying out. And so John preached. 
And here's his message in verse 5. John proclaimed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John preached repentance. John called God's people to repentance. Now, repentance literally means change of mind. It points to a willful act. It points to a rational decision. Repentance is not centered in the emotions. It's not simply an emotional response. Changing your mind is not based on feelings, and it could be connected to feelings. Now, this word in the Old Testament is often translated remorse or regret. When John preached repentance, he wanted people to change their mind about where they were in life. He wanted people to alter their understanding about their lives. He wanted them to regret where they were so that they would turn to God. And that's repentance, turning to God. And when you turn to God, you must turn from something, and that something is sin, your sin. Turning to God is turning away from selfishness. It's turning away from self-centeredness. It's turning away from going your own way, doing it your own way, and turning to God. It's a 180-degree turn. In other words, repentance is a radical change of direction. It's a radical reorientation. It's a radical change of heart. But repentance is not simply thinking about it. It's not only realizing it. Repentance is living it out. It's reflecting your change of mind in your life and how you live day by day, hour by hour. And when you, when you turn to God, you turn to living his way. You turn to follow his will. Perhaps there's been a time or times in your life when you found that you were going the wrong direction. Not only going in the wrong direction, but on the wrong road. In fact, you left direction and road some time ago, and maybe you're there now. Caught up. Trapped in sinful behavior. And perhaps it started small, but gradually, over time, it grew. You need God's word to help recognize your sin and to call you back, back to him, to repentance, away from the road you're wandering on, back to following your father, back to following your shepherd. Now, here's the the final point about repentance. It's not a one-time deal. Repentance is lifelong. Repentance continues long after salvation, long after you follow Jesus. As long as you struggle with sin, as long as you battle with a sinful heart, you will need the call to turn to God. Repentance. In fact, it's living out your baptism, dying to self and living for God. Well, John preached that with repentance, there is forgiveness. When, when God's people turn to him, when you turn from your sin, when you turn from going your own way, when you turn in faith, he is there with open arms to receive you, to forgive you. John's message was repentance. 
And not only did John preach, John baptized. He's not called Baptist for his denominational roots. He's called John the Baptist because that's what he did. He baptized. He performed a ritual water washing in the Jordan River. A water washing that symbolized repentance, a water washing that pointed to forgiveness. And in other words, those baptized by John were publicly showing their change of heart. They were symbolizing their change of direction. This baptism by John was something completely new. Jews did not baptize. Jews had washings. There were washings to prepare for worship. Gentile converts were required to wash, but there was no baptism like this. There were no water washings for, of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This was new. And through it, John was telling God's people that being born a Jew was not enough, that circumcision was not enough, that being a child of Abraham was not enough. A change of mind was needed. A change of heart was needed. A radical reorientation of life was needed because God was coming. God himself was coming. John was preaching. John was baptizing to prepare the way. And people flocked to him. They flocked to him from the country. They flocked to him from the city to to hear this prophet in camel's hair. And they came to him in the wilderness. Don't miss the location. John was a voice crying in the wilderness. And the setting is important. The place is important because the wilderness was important to God's people. The wilderness was a place of hope. The wilderness was a place of beginnings. It was a place of transformation, formation and transformation. Remember, after God freed his people from slavery in Egypt, after Moses led them through the Red Sea, they were in the wilderness, the desert. And it was there in the wilderness, in the desert, that God met with his people, that God spoke to his people, that God made covenant with his people, that God fed his people, provided for his people, and he did so for 40 years. For 40 years, God's people wandered in the wilderness. 40 years because they sinned against God. But it was in this 40 years that they turned to God, that they repented time and time and time again. It was in this 40 years that they learned to rely on God, trust in God, which is what he wants. God wants his people to rely on him. He wants you to rely on him, trust in him wholly, completely. The wilderness was a place of beginnings place of repentance and forgiveness, a place of transformation, a place of hope. And God promised to meet his people in the wilderness once again. And that hope, that promise comes straight from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. A voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. The Lord will come in the wilderness. The Lord will act in the wilderness. That's what Isaiah is promising, which which is such a contrast in how we think today. Today, we know that power and influence and authority and prestige and wealth reside in the city, in the urban centers, not in the wilderness. 
I mean, consider, where, where are all the movers and shakers in our culture? Where are the centers of power in our culture? Where are the towers of academy in our culture? Where are the influential trendsetters in our culture? Capitol Hill? The Beltway? Manhattan, Wall Street, Hollywood, Silicon Valley? At the city. Now, Jackson is certainly a city, the capital city, but compared to these others, we're more like a wilderness. And certainly our state is, certainly Mississippi is. I mean, it's, it's, it's easy to look at our culture. It's easy to look at the fruit of the movers and the shakers, the ideals of the movers and shakers, and be discouraged, be frustrated, be anxious, be worried, be angry, powerless. It's easy to wonder where God is in the midst of all this. Why, why is God not acting? Well, the truth is we may not be looking in the right place. Now, God can work in the sinners. God can work in the movers and shakers. God is at work in our urban areas, but God's also at work in the wilderness. He works in the out-of-the-way places. He works in the forgotten places. God meets his people there. God acts there. In fact, in the most important events in the history of God's people, he acts in the wilderness. Again, again, think of the Exodus. Egypt was the center of the world when God's people were slaves, the center of culture, the center of art, the center of education. But God didn't form his people there. He didn't make covenant with his people there. He didn't give them the law there. He didn't give them the Ten Commandments there. He took them out in the wilderness. In Isaiah's prophecy, God did not promise that he would come again to his people in Jerusalem. He didn't say that he would come to the center of religious life, the center of political life. God said he would come again in the wilderness. John came to prepare God's people in the wilderness, preparing God's people for one who was born in Bethlehem, preparing God's people for one who grew up in Nazareth, two out-of-the-way places, far from the center. John was preparing God's people for Jesus. Because God himself has come. The Lord has come in the wilderness, in Jesus. And out of the wilderness, God has brought salvation. Out of the wilderness, God has brought life. Out of the wilderness, God changed everything in Jesus. And God continues to work in the wilderness. Don't forget that. Don't forget that. Just, just think of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. Did the Protestant Reformation, did it start in Rome? Did it start in Paris? No. An unknown monk named Martin Luther nailed 95 theses on the church door in Wittenberg, Germany, in the wilderness. And it caused a revolution in the church, a reformation in the church. And we are here worshiping today because of it in the wilderness. And Mississippi is not the center. It's not D.C., it's not L.A., it's not New York, it's not San Francisco. But God still acts in the wilderness. God still meets his people in the wilderness. God still forms and transforms his people in the wilderness. And God is at work here. He's at work in places like Jackson and Flowood and Pearl and Madison and Clinton. Listen, who, 
Who is to say that the ministry that you do, the ministry that you do in your home, in your neighborhood, in the city, is of less value or significance than what happens in our cultural centers? Who's to say that the ministry of this church, the prayers and the service and the mission and the community is of less value or significance than what happens in the centers? The truth is, political opinion comes and goes. Politicians rise and fall. Blockbuster movies eventually fade. Tech companies are bought and sold. But faithfully following Jesus, obedience to Jesus, has eternal significance. Even in the wilderness. Now, you may feel like your own life is a wilderness right now. You might feel like you're lost in a wilderness, wandering in a wasteland. You might be wondering if you'll ever find your way out. You may be wondering where God is. I want you to hear this truth. He is there with you. Jesus is in the wilderness with you. Remember, he came out of the wilderness. He appeared in the wilderness. He knows the wilderness. And he knows you. He's with you even now. You may not feel it, but he's there, forming you, acting in and around you. And it may not be in the way you want, and it may not be the way you think it should be, but he's there. And he wants just what he wanted his people millennia ago in the wilderness to do. He wants you to rely on him, to trust in him, to turn to him, and he'll lead you home. John ministered in the wilderness, preaching, baptizing, preparing for Jesus. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths Thank you for tuning in to Witness, a ministry of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. 